this week on Dig Me Out. With your hosts, Jason Zia and Tim Minichi. Jay, we're back again with another episode thanks to our Dig Me Out Union on Patreon. You can help us make the next episode happen by joining us at dmounion.com or digmeoutunion.com. Jay joining us this week. He's a regular, he's a regular visitor now. We see him all the time. Uh both here and in the virtual world of Discord. It's Chip Midnight. Welcome back, Chip. Thank you. I was trying to think of uh some some funny pun on our guests, one of his most most uh famous songs, but uh, I'm gonna I'll say that for later. Okay. You are bringing to us one of your interviews this is when you talk to the people that we judge that is true (laughs) that is true awkward awkward yeah exactly um so who uh was your interview with this time chip so so far most of the artists i've talked to are like the front man the guy that you would recognize from a video I've always enjoyed or I've always dreamed of talking to the bass player from a band or the drummer from a band or people that maybe that you don't recognize the name of, but you recognize the band. In this case, I talked to Chad Fisher. Now, Chad Fisher is probably maybe not best known for, but his 90s work that he's best known for is being a member of School of Fish. That's right. He's the drummer originally, right? Yes. Well, now the the funny thing, and, and we talked about it in the interview, is he actually didn't play on either of the School of Fish records. Hmm. Uh, he was uh, he was he was fired from the band before he had a chance to play on a record, and then brought back to the band to tour with them. <laughs> Weird. That's that's odd. It's an interesting story. Maybe and, he has trouble with the click track. Well. You know, a little spoiler to the interview. It, it had to do with a producer who kind of worked with his own rhythm section and brought them in. Uh, ah, yes. Again, a little spoiler, but the the drummer who played on the School of Fish record that Chad it's is, Vinny Apiece. It is Vinny. No, <laughs> the, the, the record that that Chad is sort of associated with in the School of Fish history is the Human Cannonball record. Mm-hmm. The drummer who played on every record in the '90s, especially the early '90s, actually played drums. And who is that? Uh, Josh Freeze. Josh Freeze. Really? <laughs> yes. I just took a random shot because he's one of those guys yeah, who yeah, yeah. plays drums on everything. I, I was playing about to throw everything. Kenny Aaron off, but <laughs> that's the other one. And and you know you'll hear this in the interview, but but Chad does not um, uh, not hold grudges and doesn't um, you know he he was fired and Josh Freeze was brought in and then Chad ended up making uh, um, building his own studio and whose record did he work on and who did he produce the josh freeze solo record <laughs> so he and josh are friends and and no hard feelings yeah. and you know it was just, uh it was uh chad realized that he was an employee of school of fish and not a, a, a voting a member of school of fish and um you know he's done very well for himself um keeping that stuff in mind he was a student in the school of fish not a principal or teacher yeah what i didn't 
so you know joking that josh freeze and maybe not so much joking is that uh, i i have dozens for real dozens of cds that josh freeze played on he played on he played on a magna pop cd he played on um to use this band extra large he played on a bunch of stuff mm-hmm. as chad and i were talking and after chad and i were done talking i went through my cds and chad actually has his fingers in a lot of different bands that uh that i didn't realize of cds that i own which is pretty interesting to find out but current day and maybe not maybe not so current day but what he has probably best been known for in the last 20 or so years is he wrote and performed the theme song to the tv show scrubs that's that right was, that was going to be my little inside joke uh i'm no superman is the name of the song right yep and so I, when you know you were gonna say here's chip and i was gonna say oh, i'm no superman but it didn't feel right <laughs> to say it at that point in the in the conversation you should have like let me know and then i could have teed it up better for you yeah yeah but yeah that again uh chad was in the right place at the right time zach braff ended up at a um at a cookout in, in chad's backyard and next thing you know his song is the theme song to Scrubs. And, and Chad has gone on. Um, if you go to his website, chadfishermusic.com, and that's Fisher, F-I-S-C-H-E-R, music.com, he has kind of his list of credits. And he has done s- soundtracks and songs and singles for tons of movies and TV shows. He's really made a niche for himself and continued to do some stuff on the side. Um, we were talking before we started recording that he and Colin Hay from Men at Work have worked together quite a bit over the last 20, 25 years. Um, he he played on on Colin's latest couple records, or maybe all of his records. They they formed a friendship many years ago. Um, so he keeps busy with that. And then he's also had a band post school of fish called Laszlo Bain. Laszlo Bain put out um, I think one record in in the nineties, maybe two. Um, and are, are are thinking about working together again on some stuff. And I guess the one other thing I'd plug to is that during the pandemic to keep himself busy and to entertain his kid, Chad started doing a bunch of cover songs and using his iPhone and using all the fun iPhone gadgets. And um, I don't have an iPhone, so I don't really know what I'm talking about, but all the fun movie filters and stuff. And um, he ended up making uh, a a bunch of cover songs with videos. Um, Probably the one that most people might be interested in checking out is, is he redid school of fishes, three strange days. Hmm. And he he got uh, all the original members of the band to do it. And then Chad sang the lead vocals because those listeners may probably know, and if they've listened to Dig Me Out in the past, know that Josh Clayton felt the lead singer passed away from testicular cancer at like the age of like, he was like 32, 33, 35, yeah. like in his, in his, in his early thirties. So um, as a way to pay tribute to their ex-band mate, uh, Chad was able to get all the guys back together and make a cover of that song. Well, we've uh, we've talked about uh, some of the folks that uh, Chad's been, you know, involved with on this podcast. So uh, it's cool to get even more information and and about his very uh, diverse career. And when you go to his Wikipedia page, there's lots of stuff on there to cover, like you mentioned. So thanks for uh, another interview, Chip. Sure thing. And uh, let's get to it. Let's get to the interview with Chad Fisher.
All right. We're going to welcome Chad Fisher to Dig Me Out Podcast. Chad, welcome to the show. Ah, great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So Dig Me Out Podcast is dedicated to 90s music and, and music that, uh, you know, it's all about like uh, maybe underappreciated or overlooked. Uh, the guys, Tim and Jay, have reviewed Human Cannonball. I don't know in your mind if that was an overlooked or underappreciated record. I know that coming off of the first School of Fish record with the huge hit, the second one may have may not have like reached those the heights of the first one. But before we get into you and Cannonball and your School of Fish career, um, let's talk about the '90s and kind of where you started. 1990 rolls around. Not sure, and I'm not going to ask you your age unless you want to tell me. But you know, 1990. Oh, yeah. Do you remember where you were like as the '80s turned into the '90s? And oh, absolutely. I mean, I was graduating from college. I went to Brown University, which is where I actually met the lead singer from School of Fish, Josh Clayton Felt. We were good buddies, um, actually formed a band our freshman year, which would have been 1986, played around in all the different um, parties and frat parties and bars and stuff. Made our, va- uh, our maiden voyage across country to Los Angeles, where he decided, I'm going to pursue this as a professional career. And I was like, my parents will kill me if I just throw away. It took everything to get into that school. I, I got to go back and finish. So I was graduating uh, 1990. Uh, from Brown. And the day of graduation was when the School of Fishes single Three Strange Days premiered on MTV. So I'm turning on MTV and seeing my buddy like living the dream. Like he actually made it. It was pretty amazing. And I wouldn't, um, I would go out and audition for the band and actually not make it. Another guy got got that gig. And then eventually he um, left the band. And then that's when I came out and auditioned a second time, and then finally got into the band. So that's why I'm, I'm coming in halfway through School of Fish's career um, with their second album, uh, touring on that second album. But yeah, the 90s was, I mean, I graduated, when I graduated from college, I went straight to New York. I'm now playing with Lisa Loeb, who was in my class at Brown, and we're you know, playing at the Bitter End and all these places in New York City. And and all you're hearing now, I'm working at an office doing data entry as my day job. And the, like the tech guy comes up to me, and goes, "Have you heard of this band Nirvana?" And I'm like, "No." He's like, "They're gonna be huge." And I'm like, "Okay, I guess you got your finger on the pulse." And sure enough, it was like everything changed. It's kind of like when the Beatles came out; everything changed with that album. And I even saw. School of Fish change because they were they were much more of like influenced by, you know, there there was a Beatles influence there. There was a lot of tr- more trippy psychedelic British influences. But once Nirvana came along, and then the A and R person at Capitol Records is going, "Hey, it's all about grunge now," and now they're leaning into that for their second album, which may have been a mistake. Which I think is actually maybe why that record was not quite as good as the first one. Yeah. Um, feeling that pressure of the grunge. Yeah. <laughs> what, were, what were, um, so you and Josh were, were classmates at Brown. Yeah. What were, what were you guys, were you guys, I mean, you both are musicians. Were you big musician geeks in college? I mean, were you totally. always talking I mean, music and going to shows and we were, I mean, we basically hit it off at the punch bowl at a orientation barbecue that we like a month before we got to school. And we basically looked at each other and like, Hey, you look like a musician. And we started talking about Elvis Costello and the Beatles and Prince. 
and we just had all the same, um, you know, we were just huge fans of the same kind of bands, same music. And when we got when we got to Brown and we started our band, which was called The Eyes, it was a cover band, and we were covering all our favorite songs. It was The Police, David Bowie, Talking Heads. I mean, and these were the staple college classics at this point you know end of the well mid 80s whatever it was yeah it was the clash it was it was all the sort of post-punk and then early 80s the cure that's what everyone was playing i mean brown had an amazing music scene tons of bands original and cover bands and we were very blessed to be amongst like a lot of talented people and which basically had everything to do with my career later on. I mean, I was, it was, if I had not met all those people and I had not become friends with them and played with them, I don't know where I'd be today. So yeah. it's, yeah, it was, it was a pretty, uh, pretty great scene. Was Josh, I mean, did, did you know, was School of Fish like already a name? Was it something he was tossing around or did he kind of sort of find himself as School of Fish when he, when he moved to LA? When he moved to LA, it's, he actually joined, he, decided to stay because he had a high school buddy who was pursuing a career in acting, a guy named Andras uh, Jones, who was also a musician. And those guys actually started a band before School of Fish. They had a band called The Boon, B-O-O-N. And they put out a little EP, they played around. And then I think that started to, to peter out as Andras was pursuing his acting career. And I um, and then Josh met uh, Michael Ward, and then they were like, "Hey, let's let's start writing." I think they had an opportunity to write a song for a soundtrack, and that's kind of where it started. And then they it just piled on from there, and they just uh, they put out a little EP. They were playing to a drum machine, very um, sort of they might be giants uh, inspired. Just so let's just do this. We don't have a band, but we can still play, and that. That basically, uh, that little EP that they made was like a demo tape, and that had Three Strange Days on it, which ended up in um, a soundtrack to the, oh, and I'm spacing, the, the surfing movie with, shoot, oh, God, uh, whatever. It ended up in a soundtrack, and then that's when they got publishers involved, and then record industry, and then, you know, once some, there's a little bit of heat on you, especially back then, and you're playing at all the clubs, uh, club lingerie, which was which was a big club where a lot of bands were getting noticed, along with you know the Roxy and the Whiskey and every place else. They were um, quickly signed um, on that and uh, went right into the studio and, and made that first album. And that was, I think, that was all of about a year's uh, time to get that done. So that time period was obviously way pre-cell phone, way internet. Were you keeping in touch with Josh or were you? Yeah. Okay. Oh yeah. We were still really good friends and, um, you know, we were in contact all the time and I was just fascinated just watching the whole journey take place. And, and, uh, so yeah, no, we, we remain pretty much best friends throughout that whole experience. So finally being able to come out and join the band was just an amazing thrill you know to be able to play with my best bud and and just to and to i'm basically entering it's like walking into the party in full swing and mm. i'm you know the music's on everyone's going crazy and to see that was 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 pretty remarkable i mean the day that i got the gig to be in the band we started 
rehearsing right away because we had two weeks to get ready for a tour in England opening for Crowded House. And I was like, what? I'm going to be opening for Crowded House? This is insane. Yeah. And I love that band. So, yeah, I mean, it was it was off to the races as, as soon as that happened. So, yeah. So um, listeners of the podcast and people who follow. So so the podcast has a discord group that people can join. And um, within that discord group, I think everybody knows my background is that I was an 80s hair metal guy. And like we were talking before we started recording, Nirvana changed my world. When when it, the time period that you're talking, when Josh moved to LA, when you guys are keeping in touch, when Three Strange Days is being written, that's 1990, 91-ish, right? right? Was that sort of pre-Nirvana, nevermind? Yeah, this would have been, I mean, I think when they were recording that first album, which would have, which would have been 1989, um, yeah, Bleach probably had... Yeah had come out at that point, but still flying way under the radar as far as, you know, mainstream awareness. And then um, Nevermind was coming out right, I think, within within that following year of, of School of Fish's first album. And then just, you know, it was the eclipse at that point this came yeah. out. And, and that was, and I know Josh was, I mean, they, everyone was very aware of that and very, and Especially the label um, feeling like, okay, now we got to lean into this grunge sound. And Michael Ward, who came from a, a very heavy guitar, heavy metal shredding background. I mean, the guy was, and it still is an incredible guitar player, but really have, he was psyched because he was like, all right, now we can really dig in and get really, you know, heavy and dark, which is, which is definitely where he was. Josh, on the other hand, was much more about, you know, wanted to be positive and melodic and they were definite yin and yang uh, going on, which was a good thing, but then also caused a lot of tension that eventually became very unhealthy. And it was sort of like a dysfunctional marriage. Yeah. Um, and that's, that was the demise of the band eventually. So, so you, you so. moved to LA, you joined School of Fish, you rehearse and you hop on a plane to go overseas. With School of Fish, you're only option your only auditions or were you trying out for other bands at the time well like um i had i had been playing with with lisa uh with lisa Loeb, another friend from brown and um it was actually at the time that i left to go play with um school of fish i think within about six months she had her whole reality bite soundtrack um moment with her song stay which is a huge deal because that was a song that she owned 100% of. There was no publishing deal, no record deal. Gets on that soundtrack, blows up and becomes a gigantic hit. And now she's like, the world is her oyster. And I was able to watch all that happen. And we were still in, in touch. And also the guitar player, Tim Bright, who was in Lisa's band at that time, who would then later join me with Laszlo Bain. So everybody's still, you know, everyone's close watching each other, this whole, you know, explosion of everyone's careers. I mean, yeah, it was a pretty, it was a pretty amazing time, but no, I, I was not auditioning for tons of bands. I literally leapt from Lisa's band right into the school of fish uh, scenario and that, which lasted a good solid, you know, maybe two years before that finally ended. Um, because Josh was your friend, you had been playing with Lisa. Josh is your friend. Yeah. Were you banking on School of 
fish over Lisa Loeb? Like, did you, did you think Lisa was going to become the Lisa Loeb that we all still talk about? Today? Well, you know, I mean, you never know, but I was, I was just trying to get a salary, you know, yeah. and, and that way, you know, I was like, Oh, Josh is on capital. There's a salary to be had. And, and obviously a great opportunity to play with a great band and to play with my buddy. So it was kind of a no brainer. I, I mean, I, I was going where I thought, and also it was a good excuse to finally move to LA, which is where I really did want to be. Cause New York was, not really my jam. It was just, um, I literally had an allergic reaction to living in New York City. I mean, my, yeah. my skin didn't like it. It was <laughs> it just broke out an eczema. But I mean, yeah, LA was was definitely the dream to, to finally move to, to, to California. And, um, but yeah, I mean, a lot of things were happening, even, even while the School of Fish thing was going on and was starting to peter out. That at that moment was also where I met Colin and we can get into this conversation about yeah, Colin. A. And that was, um, I mean, school of fish hadn't officially ended yet, but I was able to meet Colin through a mutual friend and he needed a drummer, uh, cause he was starting to record an album in, in his, uh, home studio in Laurel in, um, Topanga. So that was another opportunity. It was like, it was, it, and it was validation that, moving to Los Angeles was a smart idea because this is where people were, there were just more opportunities for someone like me. And I was also a budding songwriter. I had always thought, well, one day I will, you know, I can't be drumming forever. The experience of actually getting fired off of the School of Fish album, Human Cannibal, and being replaced by Josh Freeze was a huge eye-opener because um, while that was happening, while I was being told by the producer, who at that point was Dennis Herring, uh, who was also well known for replacing rhythm sections on on albums, he was um, he was bringing in all kinds of drummers. And not only Josh Freeze, but other drummers were coming in. Pat Mastellano, who I was a huge fan of his drumming, he played on Oranges and Lemons, the uh, XTC album. And Pat turned to me and said, uh, "Hey man, just so you know." try to have as many irons in the fire as possible, you know? And, and it was, it was a true eye opener. Don't, I, I was realizing there's, I, I can't just be a drummer. I, I'm a, I'm not good enough. And B it's just such a narrow path. I better really start focusing on, on songwriting and production, which is pretty much what I did. As soon as the school of fish thing was crumbling, I was like, okay, I'm getting some gear. I'm going to get an eight track. I'm going to actually start learning guitar for the first time and really start working on my songwriting. And that that's where that whole turn, I mean, if I hadn't been fired or if that whole school of fish thing hadn't fallen apart, I don't know what I'd be doing today, but that was a huge pivot for me. And uh, so, yeah. Yeah, so if we can talk about Human Cannonball. So you were you were part of the writing sessions though for it, right? Just when it came to recording, you weren't on the recordings or were you even not part of the writing? Yeah, not part of the writing. Writing okay. was, was, was it was all Josh and Michael um, demoing songs, and they you know they would play them for us, and and then we you, classic sophomore slump scenario, which is that you tour endlessly for your first album, which does really well because you've got all this fresh material that you've you know they spent a long time developing. Then you've got two months to cram out material for your next album, and it really wasn't enough time. And I think that that's that along with the pressure of it being a new sound and wanting to go more grungy. Um, and then obviously there was trouble in the studio. You had Dennis Herring, who ended up 
switching all the personnel. And then he got fired. And that's when Matt Wallace came in and brilliantly basically kicked everyone in the pants and said, we got, we got two weeks to finish this. Let's go. And that guy is an amazing, he's just a great uh, positive source of positive energy and, and motivation. And, and unfortunately at that point though, Josh Fries was going to be the drummer. So yeah, I mean, it was a, it was also a lot of shit going on. There was the riots in LA were, were breaking out right as this was going to, I think the day after I got, was told I was getting fired, the riots broke out. So it was, it was some apocalyptic dark times. Um, but, um, but yeah, so that's, uh, so I answer, answer the question. Yeah. So so <laughs> I've I've uh I'm I've never played any music, have no talent in that aspect, and I've never been in a studio to hang out in these sessions. But yeah, so so were you essentially on paper or in reality an employee of School of Fish? As yes. opposed to okay. Yeah, Michael, you know, as it is with a lot of these bands, people don't often realize that usually it's just the singer, the songwriter who's signed and everyone else is on the payroll. Yeah. I think even think Jeff Tweedy and Wilco, that was this, this scenario. So, and I don't know, I'm sure the list is very long, but, and that was certainly the case for me and and Laszlo Bain, but, and that's a tricky one because now you've got a band. They're not official members because they're not, well, they're not officially signed to Capitol except for maybe one or two people in the band. How do you balance that out? How do you get everyone to feel like this is their project um, and they're not just working for you. And that, that can be tricky. And it was also tricky that Josh was my best friend, but now I'm his employee and that, that can be tricky. And there's also the dynamics, the power dynamics going on in the band because Michael and Josh are the, the leaders of the band. Well, then I come in as Josh's best friend. Does that throw off that balance? Well, maybe a little bit. Does that make Michael a little, you know, unsure of me, maybe a little bit, you know, it took a little time to warm up for me to warm up to him or him to warm up to me. And, but, uh, you know, I think that when I went off, uh, to form my own band, I wanted, I had a a very clear directive that I wanted to have a real family, a brotherhood guys that trusted each other and knew each other. So the band that I ended up putting together was that guy, Tim Bright, who played guitar with Lisa, and then his two buddies that he, that he went to school with and played in band with all through college. So I, in a way, was joining their band because yeah. they already knew, knew each other for years. And, um, but anyway, it was, it was a, a, once they were in Laszlo Bain, we were writing together. It was a four-way split. When we were all in the same room writing a song, we split it four ways, and it was a, a much healthier camaraderie. Because now yeah. everyone feels like they're a member of the family. That's, you know, I think that's crucial. I do want to hit one or two more questions about Human Cannonball. So you, sure. you, were, you were fired, but then you, like, like, were you fired, fired until like, thanks for your time, School of Fish Goodbye, and then brought back? Or how did, how did you ended up touring on that record? So yeah, how did that no, work out? I wasn't, so I wasn't fired since I was never a member of the band. It sure. wasn't like I was fired from the band, but it was, I was definitely told, um, you know, we're, we're, we've decided to go with this other drummer. And remember, there had been other drummer. It wasn't just Josh. There was other. So you could actually even say oh, Pat Masolano didn't make the cut. Yeah. So actually, when I was auditioning for the band the second time, Jack Irons, Jack Irons, famous Jack Irons from Red Hot Chili Peppers, he didn't make it. 
for whatever reason. It might have been a personality thing. He may have actually been too famous and they may have been intimidated by that. I don't know. So much goes into those decisions. Sure. But yeah, I was definitely told, hey, we're going to go with Josh Freeze. And whether I was going to continue on in the band was definitely up in the air. But I was hanging out hoping, uh, you know, that I would be. And then eventually I was. And, you know. So I'm sure they asked Josh, but Josh was way too busy. He was yeah. busy playing with Paul Westerberg and playing with, and everyone and every other band that wanted him to join their band. I mean, it, yeah. remember Josh Fries was only 21 years old. I That's think I was 24 at that time. So yeah, he was just a kid, but yeah. he was amazing. Just, I mean, we were talking before we started the recording. I have so many CDs from the 90s that Josh Fries's name is on. It's just it's incredible just to think how mm-hmm. much he played on. So Human Cannonball Tour, um, tell me about that. Uh, you headlined, I think I saw you guys in Columbus, Ohio, which was, you know this better than I as a traveler and going in and hitting these different markets, but Three Strange Days in Columbus, Ohio, I would bet that there's there's a couple schools of, of fans or fans who think that School of Fish was from Columbus because it remained on the number one most requested song on the local alternative station for 15, 20 years. And, wow. uh, and, and I think School of Fish in the early days, if I remember correctly, played in Columbus a lot. Yeah. And then there were probably other fans who thought you guys were the biggest band besides the Beatles, right? Because they heard you <laughs> on the radio every single day. Uh, what, what are your memories from the Human Cannonball tour? And, and was it all headlining? I, I saw you headline, but I'm not sure exactly what the tour was, was like. You know, it's the U.S. Because touring with Crowded House in England was such a huge thrill that my my most vivid memories are of that tour the touring that we did after that when we came back to the states felt well i guess no wait yeah human cannonball hadn't come out yet when we did the the england tour um with crowded house but the touring on human cannonball i feel like it was a tour that either got cut short or didn't go as long as it maybe should have it was definitely opening for paul westerberg I think was was a good part of that tour. And then maybe we were also going out and headlining. But it was a weird, it was definitely, I think, sadly, a little bit of a um a little bit of spinal tap scenario where they were coming back to perform at places they had previously played at that were sold out previously and now coming back and you know, not as not as great of a turnout mainly because that album was not getting as much airplay. It was right. still all about Three Strange Days. And you could definitely feel that when we would play those songs live. They connected. They, those were the songs that connected with the audience. Yeah. And, um, you know, they were more, they were, they were just poppier songs. I think they were, they were more radio-friendly songs. So that it came down to just, you know, I think, yeah, the, the newer album being darker and not as not as catchy and not as radio friendly and i think to your point as far as columbus why i think it often it just all you need is a dj or program um director who just decides to champion a band for whatever reason they feel a connection and they push that song and then everyone hears it on the radio and there you go which is something we're not getting anymore right i mean we don't have radio the way we did back then it's all playlists on Spotify and everyone just listens to their own curated thing. So we're not having that feeling. I call it the earthquake effect because in living in LA, there'd be an earthquake every now and then, and then everyone would come out of their, of their houses and bungalows 
and for the first time actually talk to those neighbors who live across the street because we right. all just had that shared experience and it was a bonding thing and that's kind of what it was like when you had something on the radio it was like that amazing moment everyone else is listening to this as i'm listening to this and this is a great kind of feeling so sure yeah <laughs> was was there a was there a official school of fish meeting where you broke up or how did how, what what led to the end of school of fish um it really happened after we played a festival in seattle i believe it, i forget the name of the festival it was an amazing show because we were those you know radio festival shows are so much fun because you're playing in front of thousands and thousands of people outdoor um and i think stone temple pilots was the headliner but we, um, it was, the, <clears throat> the discussion had been going on and on. There had never been a, a full announcement until after we played that show. And then we had a, you know, band meeting in the, uh, in the back, in the, wherever it was in the trailer. And that's when Josh and Michael basically announced uh, that, that it was, that was our last show. And uh, yeah, it was it was a sad moment. It was really sad because it had just been in the, probably one of the biggest shows we'd played. And uh, yeah, so it was. And I think in hindsight, there was definitely there was definite regret. Um, once everyone started pursuing Josh, pursuing his own solo career, and seeing how difficult it was to to start all over again, um, there were definite moments where I think that there was you know gosh maybe if we had just figured out a way to make it work we could have kept that momentum and built off of the momentum and all the years of work that we'd put into it um but that you know it i think it's it's definite proof of the of how much of uh the differences in personalities between josh and michael and and, and their desire to go and do their own thing was that it just wasn't gonna it wasn't going to work. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you, you had mentioned that you started um, investing in buying equipment and learning how to write songs and playing guitar and all that kind of stuff. So yeah. did you jump into something right afterwards? Um, before, before you answer that, let me say that, uh, you know, like I said before, um, the nineties were when I started writing and I'm a collector of music. And so I have hundreds of CDs that Josh Freeze played on, but thousands of CDs. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> Uh, I did not realize how many albums you have your fingerprints on. And so I was going through my collection after reading your discography. So I have the star 69 record that you oh, played yeah. on, um, before we started this recording, but we talked about you work with Josh freeze. Right. And then, I mean, I have Josh's solo album too. Yeah. Um, and then, and then I have the, from a record store, the advanced promo copy of the Laszlo Bain CD. Nice. <laughs> um, so talk, talk to me, School of Fish breaks up, all those things I just mentioned, and just, just the work you were doing. Did Laszlo Bain start afterwards? Did you start producing bands? Were you doing them at the same time? What was School of Fish breaks up and now what? So School of Fish breaks up. I go record Colin's record, uh, Colin mm -hmm. Hay, who I met through a mutual friend. And we're, um, so I, that is about six months of work, um, driving up to Topanga every day. and. Um, Meanwhile, I'm, I'm house hunting and I find a tiny little bungalow in Laurel Canyon. So this is around 1994, uh, 95. I finally find this little place. It's got a garage in the back and I get right to work 
gutting the garage and turning it into a recording studio. And um, and at this point, my main goal is I'm going to be a I'm going to be a producer. I'm going to be a songwriter. I can't rely on drums alone. And that's over the course of the next two years or year. Yeah, year and a half years. I just start producing every singer songwriter, every musician that I've ever played with or the bass player in that other band or blah, blah, blah. And that is basically how I start this little business of recording people's demos, also doing a little, maybe some music for a commercial or, um, yeah. So that, that now we're talking 95, 96. And while that's happening, while I'm producing other people's EPs and CDs, I'm also writing my own music thinking I'm going to, I got to, you know, I got to, if I'm going to get a, I'm going to get a publishing deal, maybe I can fool people into thinking I'm a band. And of course, at this very same time, Foo Fighters happens. So that Foo Fighters record comes out. Also, Weezer uh, has come out with their first album, which I'm totally blown away by. And it's basically saying, it's giving me permission and probably a lot of other people, hey, all you need to know is about three or four chords and write a good catchy pop song and just turn up the distortion and keep it but keep it light keep it you know have have a sense of humor have have some levity to yourself and have it be fun and have it rock and then basically garage rock was just you know at an all-time high you got pavement all these bands that you know that are basically it's the turning of the dark period of grunge into the more pop version and that's basically where Laszlo Bain was born. And I was, um, I just started writing these songs, recording them all myself. And then luckily one of these other, a guy named um, Jeremy Toback, who was signed to RCA. I know Jeremy. And, uh, oh yeah. So, and I was, uh, I was recording some of his demos and his, one of his like early versions before, as he was getting signed or maybe just before he got signed. Anyway. He was getting played on K-Rock. K-Rock in L.A. had Sunday night local hour um, with, with Zeke. And that was, he had just been playing um, Jeremy's uh, stuff. And Jeremy actually gave Zeke my demo of my Laszlo Bain songs. And Zeke was like, hey, this is cool. And he started playing some of the songs on that. And basically the next day, Monday morning, my phone wouldn't stop ringing. It was labels, A&R people. I was like, holy shit, what the hell is happening? And I had to quickly go out and get a, a lawyer who I, luckily enough, was able to find the same lawyer that represented David Grohl in his Foo Fighters deal. And, she, and her name was Jill Berliner. And she was all about championing you know, these young artists and getting them to retain their master rights and all this stuff. So I was, um, yeah, it was just one of those total stars aligning and uh moments and and so my first uh i had to i'd never played guitar and sang in front of an audience before i was like what the hell am i doing how am i gonna pull this off like well first i have to hire josh freeze so josh was in the band i had the um original uh one of the bass player from who played in school of fish uh played on that and then lyle workman Lyle Workman was uh, and is the legendary Lyle Workman. He had played with, he was on tour with Frank Black. 
at that time. Later on, would play with Beck and with Sting. That's an amazing composer. He's also one of my best friends. He, um, I had met him through a mutual friend. He played guitar. We'd actually written some of the songs for that Laszlo Bain record together. So yeah, I had like an all-star band. I mean, no matter how bad I was as a singer or guitar player, it didn't matter. I, mean, I just stand there and let those guys play. And that basically is how, how Laszlo Bain started. So it was, it was, it was all happening pretty fast. And I was definitely, um, yeah, it was, you know, once, once that record deal happened, I was able to put all the other projects kind of aside. I didn't have to worry about um, producing other people as much anymore. It was all about Laszlo Bain years. And then, uh, you know, we were lucky enough to make two albums for them. And for Almo Sounds, that was the label that we got signed yep. to, part of, uh, part of Geffen. And then um, come 1999, I, we're about five, four years later, that label is folding. and they just gave our record back to us. They said, I know you guys spent two years making this, but we're not going to be in existence anymore. So you can have it back. And, and that led to the Scrubs theme song happening, which yeah. is a whole other story. Yeah. I'd have some other questions first. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We'll get to that in just a second. So um, two things. One is, so I love that you name dropped Jeremy Toback again, like a big fan. And I was into the, he was in what, satchel or brad yeah he was in, well yeah he was in brad 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 uh and brad yeah what an amazing thing in the early days of the internet um somehow i found his email address and sent him notes and so we traded correspondence a little bit and i interviewed oh, him wow. interviewed him around the um another true fiction i think Is that yeah that was the name of his that record right. yeah um so name drop some more people who else who else did you record in your studio during that time <laughs> any anybody that that i might have cds of in my collection Oh, gosh, there was actually an interesting period where there was a lot of people coming through to I had. Um, oh, gosh, I should have written all this stuff down. <laughs> um, oh, when you put me on the spot, my, my memory just totally blanks on everybody's names. But. Uh, um, well, uh, Billy Idol. Uh, I've, heard, I've heard of him. Yeah, he, he was he was being produced by Kevin Hunter, who was so. I have to mention Wire Train. So Wire Train, which was another band that they were around in the 80s, huge, uh, Josh and I were huge fans of. Well, when while we were making, we were working on Human Cannonball, Wire Train was working on an album um, across town. And I can't even remember, uh, the drummer, Brian McLeod of, uh, in Wire Train, and Michael Ward, the guitar player from School of Fish, they were, were both working on an album together. They were, at this point, they were like, they were session guys. They were playing on a lot of other people's records. And Matt Wallace was producing this album. And I'm spacing the name of the artist, which is total prime at this moment. But um, we were able to go over to the studio and meet the rest of Wire Train, and, which is a huge thrill for Josh and I. And then we became good buddies with, with all of the guys in the band. Jeff Trott, incredible guitar player in the band, also played on um, a World Party's first uh, couple of albums, which, again, like probably my biggest, one of my big favorite bands of the 90s, of the 80s, uh, into the 90s, and still to this day is World Party. Yeah. So um, 
so and it, like someone like Jeff Trot would actually come to my studio because he he just finished a song and we would kind of finish it together. Um, I was co-writing stuff with Kevin Hunter, the singer from Wire Train. He and I wrote um, one of the songs, um, Flea Market Girl, which is on the first Laszlo Bain album. Um, Brian McLeod, amazing drummer, would end up playing drums on a bunch of Josh's uh, solo stuff. So I ended up finishing, I ended up finishing Josh's um, last solo album, which he had recorded at this point three times with two different producers. Finally, decided to just finish it all himself, and then I helped him mix it and add some other stuff in my studio in Laurel Canyon. This would have been 1999, and he was. Um, that was as we were finishing that he was suffering from all kinds of pain, back pains and things in which we would discover turned out to be um, cancer. And then he would only live for about a month after basically finishing his act. We finished his album and then he had about a, a month to live. It was, yeah, yeah devastating. Yeah. Uh, again, that's happening while my label is folding and it's not, you know, it's sort of two bookends of the beginning of the School of Fish not you know getting let go of that album the riots are happening this is early 90s now we're at the end of the 90s and josh is passing away and the music industry is collapsing i mean it's really really dark times yeah for sure um, yeah i became aware of laszlo bain i'm pretty sure because i saw the video for overkill on 120 minutes or mtv i think that's probably how i discovered you and then as i was going through a local CD store came across the, the advanced promo copy. And yeah. that that's when I discovered on the back, I think it says that you were in school of fish and this was, you know, this was early, early internet days. And so I, I didn't have Google at my fingertips. So to see Chad Fisher school of fish, and then trying to think who was Chad in school of fish. Cause I didn't know, I, I only knew Josh and, and, and Michael's names. And so, you know, putting all the, I'm like, Chad was not a guitar player in that band. And, Anyway, it took me a long yeah. time to figure out that you were the drummer from School of Fish, but that you were leaving this band. So um, at the time, not knowing your history with Colin Hay, um, it seemed like quite a coup to get Colin Hay, who I'm imagining, just like me, you and I both grew up with Men at Work's business as usual and cargo records as kind of, yeah. I mean, those are the first like cassettes I remember buying. Yeah. Um, but, but, but it was more than just calling up your manager saying, do you happen to know Colin and bring him in? You had established a relationship and actually played on records of his that by that point. Yeah. So I had I, already played on his album. Then we'd already, we'd, we'd even co-written a song for a soundtrack, uh, a film called gold diggers. We did the end sequence song called the, called the flying song. So we'd worked on a song together. Then I was playing, um, he would go out on tour and I would, play drums for him. Sometimes I would just play with him on stage at Largo, which is uh, here in LA, the old Largo, which um, he would play at regularly. So it was, it, he had become a, a real, like a father figure, like an uncle. Um, you know, we'd become family at this point. And um, so, yeah, so I had actually, I'd been producing one of his songs uh, in my studio. And then I said to him, listen, could I do a version of your overkill and um, just mess with it? And he's like, sure. So he came to the studio, just played acoustic guitar and sang the song. And then I ended up taking that and then adding drums and piano, guitars, 
I'm singing basically the whole first half of it. And then, then I used his vocal in the, towards the end. And that's how that track came together. That was happening while I was recording my Laszlo Bain demos. Okay. Uh, so it was all at the same time. And I definitely put that song on the demos as, you know, because there was a lot of discussion of like, well, one great way to get a deal or to break is with a cover. And that, and that, there was definitely some magic in that cover. And, oh, and, sure. and then, um, yeah, so that's, that's basically how that happened. He was, and, you know, and then I, I had the idea for the video, which was sort of a Barton Fink, you know, old rundown, you know, residential hotel in LA and, and he'd play the bellhop and come in and break up the rehearsal in the, in the ballroom. And it, I still love watching that video to this day. I just I love that moment when he comes in and takes over. It's just, it's just amazing. I'm not even kidding. Like even thinking about that and like watching the video, it, it yeah. still gives me goosebumps. Like 20 oh. years later, like just seeing Colin <laughs> Hay come in and start to sing. Um, oh. It was just, it, it was, it was such an awesome. And, and I think that song, you know, I think we know, I think it probably, I, I, I was too young to know hits or not hits. I knew it was on the radio. Um, I don't remember Overkill being as big as Down Under and Who Can It Be Now. I always considered it like yeah. the, um, my favorite song that nobody knew, but I'm sure people knew it. Yeah. But, um, well, you know that when he would play at Largo acoustically, he would play, he would, he would, he would play all those songs acoustically. But when Overkill, when he did Overkill, the audience, you could feel in the room because it yeah. wasn't just a pop song. It was, it had so much more depth to it. Yeah. And somehow when you break it, which is what I love, I love when a song gets broken down to its, to its real bare essentials and then the, the real emotion can come through. And I think, which is, which is also what Colin ended up doing with his whole career as a songwriter. And from that point on, where his albums became more acoustic and he's more sort of like a, like a troubadour up there, you know, he's telling stories, he's playing his songs acoustically. They just have so much weight to them. And, you know, that's where a song like I Just Don't Think I'll Ever Get Over You, which was ended up on the, the Garden State soundtrack. Mm -hmm. uh, by the way, I should do one little shout out, which is describe, it just reminded me, describing record the whole process of recording Overkill, having him come to the studio, play a guitar and sing, and then I added a bunch of stuff to it. That's exactly what we just did last summer for his new album. Well, he's got two albums that have just come out, but the covers album that he just put out called um, I Just Don't Know What to Do With Myself. Ah, there it is. <laughs> and that was basically what we were doing again. It was the same thing. Like he plays his guitar and sings and then he just says, have fun and put yeah. whatever you want on it. And it's just it's I, it's one of the, my favorite things to do is to just like it's almost like a challenge. OK, here's here's what I've done now. What can you do to make it better or just add to it? And I have. Yeah, it's just. Uh, it's it's where I just feel like how lucky am I? I, I mean, yeah. this is like a fun hobby that I get to do and I've figured out a way to turn it into a career, which is just totally insane. So, so that's a fantastic segue into like, so 1999 becomes 2000 and, and all of a sudden like your career behind the scenes and, and in front of the scenes takes off. I mean, you score the, the theme song on a TV show, you're working with Colin, you're producing bands, you're keeping Laszlo Bain going. Like, do you feel almost more alive in the 2000s and in the 90s even? Well, I always say like from the tragedy of the end of, you know, of that, you know, everyone said, um, remember the Y2K 
Oh, uh, yeah. Everyone was freaked out that every computer was going to crash because they hadn't figured out the dates, you know, in the programs uh, in like all the computers and the whole world was going to come to a stop. And I, there was this, uh, there was, yeah, it was such a crazy time coming out of the 90s. And I do, I do think that, God, how lucky, how lucky I was that so many of these weird, because a lot of these things are just happy accidents. I just happened to have a barbecue where one of the artists that I was producing at this time. Now, I should actually say that Laszlo Bain was sort of over at this point in 2000, 2001. We, you know, we got our album back, but we're not touring. We're not really making any more records at this point. I'm now back in the studio, busy producing a lot of other people because now there's a huge music scene that's exploding of singer-songwriters at a club called the Hotel Cafe. Mm-hmm. And Carrie Brothers is, is playing. And um, through, through like one person, I meet another and I meet another. And now it's this, it's all these people who had actually all gone to Northwestern. And Zach Braff was one of them. And he happened to live up the road from me. And so I'm producing all these friends of his. And, um, and then Zach comes down to a barbecue that I'm having. I'm playing the songs that I've been producing. And I'm passing out the Laszlo Bain CD just because I've, I've got a stack of them. I don't know what to do. And he just takes it home and goes, and then email, emails me. He's like, dude, this song would be perfect for this show that I'm, I'm just doing the pilot for. And he single-handedly convinces the producers to, to make that song the theme song. They were like, no, we, don't have, we actually don't have any plans for a theme song. We don't have enough time for a theme song. There's too much dialogue. And he's like, no, 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 you got to play. Just play it and listen to it. It's perfect. Anyway, he convinces them. And that, that was the moment that really changed everything. Because now I'm in the TV world. And now I can start doing, I can actually get an agent and start maybe trying to get jobs writing for television. And at that same time, actually, right as that was happening, I did get a job doing the music, all the songs and score for a, a show called My Guide to Being a Rockstar, which had starred Oliver Hudson. And, um, and it, you know, I basically had I get like a couple months to write all these songs that they would then be performing on the show. They hadn't hired a composer, so I just pitched myself, even though I'd never been a composer before, but they're like, yeah, we can use the songs and the score and blah, blah, blah. So that led to that. This is all 2000. This is all 2000, 2001. And then um, I remember I was supposed to get on a plane to go to Canada, actually, to help the band in one of their performances on that TV show. And 9-11 happened. That day, I was supposed to get on the plane. Wow. Obviously, I didn't end up going anywhere. Yeah. So I'll always remember that. But um, so, yeah, this is all in the, those first couple of years. A lot has changed as, as far as just being a guy in a band to now, which was which was sort of the plan. I got to do other things. I got to produce other and do other, you know, do, do other kinds of music work. And it just ended up things just. Yeah, there were just a lot of happy accidents and a lot of. Uh, yeah, a lot of luck and a lot of. I don't know. They always say you're it's luck and preparation. I guess I was pretty prepared. And yeah. and but coming to LA again, back to that whole decision, do I live in LA? Do I stay in New York? LA was definitely, I think, the smart move for that. 
Yeah. And being prepared is, is phenomenal. I mean, I don't have all my CDs there in another room, but I was actually going to pull up like maybe even the Star 69. Like, I don't know if... Oh, yeah, we need to talk about that for a second. Okay. So Star, Star 69, they were a band um, on Radioactive. Oh, wait, what was the Yeah, label? Radioactive. Yeah, yeah. And so um, I... Okay, back to uh, Wire Train for a second. The drummer, Brian McLeod, was supposed to play drums on that record. And Don Smith is the producer don smith who had produced everything from the stones i mean the guy's a legend he um at the last minute brian couldn't make it couldn't make the gig i can't remember what he was doing but he gave me a call and said hey i'm gonna put you up for this job just because um they need a drummer you it's perfectly in your style it's it's nothing too complicated it's just straight ahead you know alternative rock so that's how i got that gig and now i'm driving out to agora hills where don smith's studio is and I'm meeting the band, I'm meeting the very sassy, somewhat ob- obnoxious, um, very attractive lead singer. And then we actually ended up dating. I think this is a drummer, leads, female lead singer thing. I don't know, but <laughs> that, that happened for a while. Um, and then the bass player in that band, Warren Hewart, now runs... Um, I think one of the most successful uh, produce like a pro YouTube channels teaching people how to produce. And he, oh, wow. he owns my old house in Laurel Canyon. That's and crazy. he, and he runs that podcast or that, that YouTube channel and the studio out of my old studio. He's now got an SSL console in there. He helped Aerosmith finish their last record in that studio. And you can watch them on YouTube. I get to, you know, I just, you get to watch them, you know, interview all these amazing, uh, legendary producers and engineers. And but so being prepared, you know, I, I, I so you do like Warren is doing something now. But there's a lot of bands where people aren't prepared, who have had mm-hmm. to go back into the corporate world, right? So, I mean, or, or not back into the corporate world, but get other jobs. So it sounds like um, you're in a good place. Well, I. Um... Lyle Workman, who I was mentioning earlier, um, he, when we met, he, uh, we met through a mutual friend, uh, Michael Urbano, another amazing drummer who's played in a million bands. He's sort of another Josh Freeze. Um, uh, they had played in a band um, called Bourgeois Tag back, back oh, in yeah. the 80s. And in fact, Lyle had written their own, kind of their biggest hit. I which don't I was, mind. I don't mind, which I was a massive fan of. When I found that out, I was like, holy shit, you wrote that song? So he he and I, when he moved down to L.A., it was basically the, we were both having this realization like, yes, you can do. You know, he was married. I wasn't married, but he, he, he was married. And I think feeling like, OK, how do I have I need a steady gig? I need how do I turn this into some a career where I'm not going to just be freaking out my entire life? Yeah. And we were both realizing it's a it's all about having a studio in your garage because now the gear is here. We've got Pro Tools. We can do anything. You don't have to go to a massive studio, which is oddly enough what Warren Warren's whole show is about, which is takes place in my old studio, which is you can do this. The gear is here and figure out how to use it. Figure out how to I feel like I couldn't have been actually born at a better time because it is because of technology that I was allowed to, to do everything, whether it's score movies, produce other people, 
um, you can make, you can just, you can pretty much where there's a will, there's a way now. And I think that um, that was always, you know, again, I'm also the son of a, a neurosurgeon who always wished his son had gone to medical school. Yeah. There was always this pressure for me to figure out a way to make it happen and to see it succeed, you know, failure not being an option. And that pressure, which I hated at the time, I now I thank him for. I, I, and because you got, you got it, you have to have that hustle, you have to have that drive and determination because um, I do now see a lot of the musicians that I did know back then who maybe they're, yeah, it's a serious struggle now yeah. more than ever. We we're, we're, we're in the, you know, it's been a slow decline and demise of the music industry. Now it's the entire entertainment industry is going through this. You know, what Napster did to the music, music industry streaming is doing to the entertainment industry. And I mean, I'm now scoring independent films for almost an unlivable wage. It's if you were coming out and I know a lot of people coming out the new thing, it's not to be in a rock band, it's to be a media composer. Mm -hmm. um, kids are coming out of Berkeley, out of USC. And there's a real realization of like, holy shit, this isn't going to be easy. It, I mean, it never, it's never been easy, but now it's really, really difficult um, because budgets have just, you know, dropped to almost nothing. Well, yeah. similar to records. I mean, this is all the people that I knew who were making records, Josh Fries included, People aren't making records like that. Producers aren't, you know, getting hired and going to, I mean, maybe a little bit, but nothing like it was back in the 90s. Yeah, like, for sure. So, What's funny is, I think, so I knew Three Strange Days. And like I said, I was an 80s hair metal guy who, whose life was changed by listening to Nirvana. But um, the main reason and the way I get into Human Cannonball was because I interviewed Blind Melon before they had their first record out. And it's a long story, but the short version is I wanted to meet Soundgarden and Soundgarden was not doing interviews. And so I looked at the, I looked at the lineup for the show and I was like, this band Blind Melon, never heard of them, but I'll interview them and then I'll get to meet them. And then they'll take me backstage to meet Soundgarden, which never happened. Yeah. Yeah. But I ended up becoming really good friends. I, I mean, I still talked to the Blind Melon guys like oh, wow. re very recently, but I ended up on the Capitol Records mailing list and that's how I got Human Cannonball. And, and um, but I don't know if you know, like after Shannon Hoon died, Brad Smith and Christopher Thorne started their own studios. They bought equipment and they, they put that investment in. They knew that this is what they wanted to do with their lives. Yeah. So they, they, were, they were prepared as well. And I think uh, Brad doesn't, well, Brad composes music now and, and does some producing, but I know Christopher's got a, a studio out in um, Joshua Tree, I think. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's right. I think yeah. I, I, I remember that. Yeah. Yeah. Joshua Tree, actually, a lot of people are out in Joshua Tree now. That's kind of a, especially during the pandemic. That was the yeah. thing. Go to Joshua Tree, buy yourself a little shack and fix it up. <laughs> so, speaking of pandemic, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, it seems like you, you became even more prolific. You were releasing videos and stuff. Is that stuff you were doing before the yeah. pandemic, or was that to keep yourself busy and, and to take advantage of the time? Oh, it was definitely to keep myself busy. And it started out just like, oh, people are just bored and recording. They're live streaming themselves. And and I was, after watching a few people live stream themselves and sort of, you know, the, 
do that awkward moment where they're waiting for people to start paying attention and then they're testing the mic and they haven't really practiced their stopping and starting throughout their performances. I was like, you know what? I'm just going to film myself with my iPhone, like getting a really one good take and I'll record it and then I'll add stuff to it, embellish it a little bit just to make it sound even better than just a straight vocal and guitar. Anything to help it, anything to help me sound <laughs> decent. And that, it just every video then became, you know, the song had to be sort of inspired by the pandemic. Mm -hmm. uh, Life of Illusion was the first one, which I thought was just couldn't, you know, thematically couldn't have been more perfect. And then, yeah, it just one video after another, I just kept on upping the ante. And then then we did the. And I was like, OK, this has got to be a, now let's turn this into a Laszlo Bain thing. I don't want it just to be me. This is I'm boring. So that was getting all the guys back together to do the um, Superman cover and then to get all the friends and even some of the cast members to be in that video was a huge undertaking, but I think totally well worth it. At this point, I started thinking, you know what? I'm just making these fun videos for my daughter yeah. so she can grow up and go show it to her kids or she can show it to her friends and look at my crazy dad, you know, that is pretty much what I'm doing. I'm like, this is just documentation. Um, and I, I don't know, it, I definitely got pretty into the whole, then it was like, let's get some green screens. Let's get really crazy. Now we can play, oh, we're green screening ourselves. We can play anywhere. We can play on a mountaintop, we can, you know, we can yeah. play on SNL. So that, that basically, uh, yeah, that was just every month was like, let's do another cool, let's do a crazy video. And then um, at the end of it, I was like, hey, let's, this is an album. Let's just, I'm, so I kind of remixed it a little bit and then put it out as an album. And that's Someday We'll Be Together. And it's Laszlo Bain and Friends. And it's, there's even a cover of um, You've Got a Friend, the um, James Taylor song on there. And I'm able to get, uh, so another, another friend I convinced to move to LA to come out here to just because they would be a great, um, addition into in getting into like composing as well as doing their own thing is Larry Goldings. And Larry Goldings, an amazing jazz pianist, organ player. He's been signed um, numerous albums. The guy, he plays with James Taylor. He plays with tons of people. He's had an, an incredible career. He and I go all the way back to music camp. We met when we were like 13 years old in Maine at Camp on Coracota. So Anyway, when I was like, okay, I'm going to do this James Taylor cover, I'll get Larry to play on it, I'll get Colin Hay to sing on it, I'll get Louise Goffin, who was my neighbor in Laurel Canyon, she's Carol King's daughter. Carol King wrote the song. I mean, it was just like, and then, um, yeah, uh, Paul, uh, oh my gosh, uh, my brain. Um, Dan Rothschild plays oh, bass yeah. on that, and Dan is Paul Rothschild's son. Paul Rothschild who produced The Doors. Dan lived right behind me in Laurel Canyon. So he was my neighbor behind me. So anyway, that was that ended up being a really great sort of ode to, to Laurel Canyon. And um, so there's a lot of collaborations on that album, but and um, Bert and Ernie are in the video. And Bert and Ernie, yeah. That's actually uh Bert and Ernie care of Lisa Loeb's um <laughs> Lisa Loeb's husband, uh Rowey. Uh, who is a huge fan of the Muppets and had those, I don't know if he had those made, I don't know where he got those, but he's got an amazing collection of puppets and everything. Yeah. But, uh, Did Dan Rothschild 
I met him because he was in Nancy Wilson's band and they came in the, they did a album signing when they were in oh, Columbus cool. just a couple of years ago. Yeah. Did, did he play with Jeremy Toback? Um, I, Maybe not Dan. Um, I don't think Dan played with Jeremy, but Dan played with um, Better Than Ezra. In fact, he produced the first Better Than Ezra album uh, in Santa Monica. I think he was talking about how like they recorded the amps in a van in the driveway. I don't know what. It's a bunch of crazy stories, but Better Than Ezra, um, he did that album. And in fact, the singer from Better Than Ezra ended up being my tenant for a while. He lived in that little canyon house while I still owned it, but I had moved to Santa Monica. Have you thought about writing a book? Oh, gosh. Um, <laughs> no, I have too many albums to make um, at this point. I, have, I, I don't know I, if I could ever. That would be a huge undertaking. Start your own um, podcast. You you seem to have you have like all these connections in this like very deep uh, contact list, and you a lot of connections and spider webs that all lead back yeah. to you somehow. I don't know. Maybe I, a couple <laughs> people have said yeah, I should do a podcast. I, I don't know. I I have fun being on podcasts, but yeah. um, who knows? Everyone has so many podcasts now. It's I, it's, it's unbelievable. Um, <laughs> Does the world need another podcast? <laughs> So, so with the pandemic project, uh, you ended up doing three strange days. Yes. And that was, so after getting Laszlo Bain back together, I was like, shit, I got it. I had actually, um, the, just a month before the pandemic broke out, we had a 20 year anniversary of Josh Clayton Felt's death, um, uh, a celebration in our house here in Santa Monica and all his family, extended family came over. A lot of old friends, people I hadn't seen in ages came and we performed a bunch of Josh's songs. And um, I played Euphoria on the piano and um, Larry and I did a couple other couple songs, um, Backwards World. And it was a really amazing, I mean, it was just an incredible afternoon. And um, I had been thinking what was uh, so now fast forward another year into the pandemic and I'm thinking what got to do another cover. It was all covers at this point. So let's, yeah. And then I was like, it's going to be three strange days and I'm going to get Michael to play on it. I'm going to get everyone to play on it. And I literally just, I drove out to Michael's house and had him play. Oh, he, he, had, he played some stuff in his little, in his studio, but then I had him, I had to videotape everybody. So I had him do his solo and he's plugged into a little pig nose amp and, and, but that's actually another incredible thing is that because of the pandemic and everyone's stuck at home, you can kind of call anybody up now and everyone's got the time and the, the sort of the need to bond and everyone's excited about uh, reconnecting. So, yeah, that was that was that was a pretty I don't know that that video. Ah, it's it's very uh there's a lot to say about it. I mean, I'm, I, first of all, I love the way it came out. There's a, there's a little bit of a nod to, uh, sorry, I just had no someone come in the studio. Um, there's a little nod to uh, another great band from the 90s on that version that I did, which is, um, oh, what's the name of that band? Okay. The, the song is Take My Picture. Filter? Uh, Filter. So I love that song, that song, Take My Picture from Filter. So the, I'm I'm doing a little nod to that, and just the way the there's a tabla in the 
12 string guitar. Yeah. The other magical thing was I had just been to Colin's studio and I saw this kid who he'd hired to engineer some tracks. I'm like, holy shit, that guy looks just like Josh. I'm like, Colin, how come you have even mentioned this? You have Josh's doppelganger working in your studio. So I was like, that guy's definitely got to be. So he's, he, his name is Marciel. Um, He's an amazing producer and he has a studio downtown in LA. Anyway, he came over and he plays the sitar. I I don't know, just having him in the video, just to bring Josh to life in a way was pretty amazing. Yeah. And then have all the guys, including the original drummer MP playing drums on it. I don't know. It was just, it was a school of fish reunion. I mean, it was, if there could be one, this was it. So that was, that was pretty amazing. Yeah. So kind of to wrap it up, um, you know, we talked about, I mean, and you even talked about the nineties started off and the way that it ended, it was kind of this roller coaster ride for you. Um, nostalgically looking back, how, what, how would you describe the nineties maybe to your daughter in terms of your career, in terms of your music yeah. career? Um, well, I would say that, I would say that it's all about the work. I would say that that there's a time in in your uh, you get out of school, you get thrown out into the world, and what are you going to do? What are you going to do with your life? And that whole decade was me searching uh, frantically and trying to figure out what am I doing with my life. I mean, it's waking up every morning with a panic attack of like, holy shit! If I don't figure this out, I I might end up homeless on the street i don't know like it's that sent that those panic attacks which basically created the drive i think for me to just do everything i could to figure out what it was that i was going to do and that meant trying out as many different things as possible and um I, i don't know but i also feel like how lucky was i to to land in if i was getting out of college right now coming to LA, I'd be screwed. I mean, I I don't, there would, the opportunities that were around back then were so, there were just so many more. And it was such a fertile time, great time to be a songwriter and to be in a band. I mean, the idea of being in a band, I I don't even think that, that just doesn't exist the way it did back then. So how, and I say this to everybody, everyone I know that we all grew up during that time, we always say how lucky we were, even Colin. Colin is like, how lucky, yeah, I'm like, how lucky you were. I mean, for a, for a long period of time, he would always say, oh, I wish I could have a huge hit again. I'm like, yes, but look at, look at what you did. I mean, look, and look at what you did have, how lucky you are. And I, I should just end with one little story, which I was lucky enough to meet Paul McCartney at Colin's house. We had dinner together, just five, the five, it was just, it was just a small gathering. and. And Colin was saying this very thing. He was like, you know, I just wish I could get a hit again like I had back then. And then Paul looked at him and said, well, you know, you know, Colin, I'm looking around right here. I'm looking around at your house and I'm thinking to myself, not so bad, not so bad. And I was like that. Oh, and Colin, well, I could say that, but he won't hear it. But here you got Paul saying it. And I think it sunk in a little bit. That was... So anyway, I, that would be my 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 whole statement about the '90s that I was able to live it and got not so bad, not so bad. That is a fantastic story to end on. I do want to give you the chance um, 
is it chatfishermusic.com or tell me yeah. tell me where people can find you and and yeah my website stuff. is my website is chatfishermusic my youtube channel is chatfishermusic and uh type it in and you'll get there and you'll see all those wacky videos and and then my website has all my scores for all the films that I've worked on and then some of my my uh, instrumental solo albums that I did one called National Parks that came out a couple of years ago and there'll be more of those coming out in the future and there'll be another Laszlo Bain original album coming out because we're done with covers now everyone tells me no more covers start got to start writing some original music so that's that's what's coming in the future Awesome. Well, thank you, Chad. Uh, I hope you enjoyed talking about the 90s as much as I enjoyed hearing your stories. Uh, I did. Thank you for having me on. It's been great. Thanks for listening. To support the podcast, visit www.patreon.com forward slash dig me out and become a monthly subscriber at www.digmeoutpodcast.com where you can find links to our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram pages. 